Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome back to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Ken Keefley. Joining us today on the topic of textual criticism is Dr. Chuck Quarles. Dr. Quarles is a scholar of New Testament textual criticism and paleography and is the co-author of an upcoming book entitled 40 Questions on the New Testament Text and Canon, uh, in which he is co-authoring it with Scott Kellum. He serves as a research professor of New Testament and biblical theology, and he occupies the Charles Page Chair of Biblical Theology here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, located in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Dr. Quarles has also served as a pastor. He has served as a missionary to Romania, if my memory serves me correctly. And he has written extensively on the Synoptic Gospels, including a text on the theology of Matthew. Uh, so be sure to tune in to our other episode with Dr. Quarles in which we discuss his uh, books on Matthew. Uh, Dr. Quarles, thank you for speaking with us today. My privilege to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. So what is the 40 Questions series? I mean, you just, I realize there's plenty of, of uh, biblical examples of 40 years in the wilderness and uh, our 40, and in 40 days of temptation for Jesus. Uh, what is the 40 question series and who is it published by? Yeah, well, it's published by Kriegel and the editor of the series is our colleague, Dr. Ben Merkel. And the purpose of the 40 question series is to try to uh, get into the mind of the average person out there and think through the questions that they are most likely to have in their mind about a given theological topic. I find the 40 question series so very helpful. I have, uh, full, dis full disclosure, I, I co-authored one of the books myself, but I find the series very helpful in that it, they are relatively brief. Each chapter is generally you know, eight or 10 pages long. Uh, it addresses something that is generally a pressing question. But my experience as co-authoring uh, one of the 40 questions uh, books, and I suspect it's been your experience too, and I've talked to some of the other authors and they have said the same thing, and that is one of the most difficult things is what selecting the right 40 questions. Uh, you know, you find that that is uh, something that uh, is a bit challenging. But you didn't get to do all 40. You're, you're co-authoring, so you deal with 20 questions on textual criticism. Exactly. So how in the world did you boil that down to, okay, here are the 20 questions on textual criticism? What, what kind of questions did you, did you address? Well, I tried to choose questions that, that helped address uh, all of the issues in textual criticism today. Uh, some of the questions that I deal with are frankly not the kinds of questions that really interest me uh, because I think they're simple, they're open and shut. Uh, questions like, well, 
why don't we just follow the text of the 1611 King James Version? Uh, but that has to be dealt with because there's so many people out there who are convinced that that particular edition and translation is the inerrant one, and any deviation from it at all is sinful and even heretical. Well, since you brought up the King James only position, and I come from a very conservative background in which, as you say, uh, I have some very uh, people very near and dear uh, in my Christian walk in life that, that were very formative, that they are definitely uh, King James only people. And so how would you respond to somebody who, who says, uh, look, King James was good enough Paul, it's good enough for me. You know, how, how, how do you answer that? Yeah. Well, I, I used to hold that position, too, as a young Christian. Uh, but that was also the point at, at which I assumed that uh, Peter and Paul actually spoke King James English. Uh, there were many false assumptions behind that view on my part. Uh, but the reality is, I don't know any... Uh, New Testament textual critic today who would insist that the Textus Receptus, which would be the Greek text that serves as the basis for the King James translation, is the inerrant original. Uh, an example would be 1 John 5, 7 through 8, the Trinitarian passage uh, that many of us would like to be in the New Testament because it would make some debates so much simpler for us, uh, but the reality is it doesn't appear in any New Testament manuscript until the 14th century and later. Uh, probably not original on that basis alone. And then there are some other problems that we could look at. I don't know anyone who has argued for the originality of those two verses uh, since the 20th century. Okay. So you mentioned uh, you, textual critics. What is textual criticism? What, 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 give us your working definition yeah. of Well, what? I'm glad you asked that question because I'm afraid when a lot of people hear the term critic, they're probably thinking of some sinister, diabolical uh, scholar with a Ph.D. who... May have an adversarial attitude yeah, towards the text. who sits behind his desk cackling at, at every opportunity to undermine the Word of God. Uh, but critic, in this sense, just means someone engaged in scholarly research who is trying to approach these questions in essentially a scientific way. A textual critic is someone who is using the best tools of scholarship to restore the original readings of the Greek New Testament to serve as a basis for translation uh, and exegesis and sermon preparation. So what do you mean whenever you use the expression original autographs and where are they? Yeah, well, they no longer exist. Uh, the autographs were lost or destroyed in the first few centuries of Christian history. Uh, we have reference to the autographs of Paul's letters being still in existence in the time of Tertullian. Uh, in the late second century, uh, we have reference to autographs of the Gospel of John still being in existence uh, around AD 300 in one writing. 
after that, any references to the autographs still being in existence are really, really suspect. And often in sources that are accompanied by legend and uh, clearly are not historically reliable. Now, what happened to the autographs? Well, I think some of them were on fragile writing materials like papyrus, and because of the heavy use of those documents, they simply deteriorated. And when a manuscript deteriorated, uh, it was often ceremonially buried or burned out of respect for the document, much as we would treat a dilapidated American flag today. It's possible that some of the autographs were actually destroyed in the early intense persecutions of the Christian church, uh, where uh, pagan Roman emperors seized every copy of Christian literature they could find and submitted it to the flames in an effort to wipe out the Christian faith. Uh, we tend to think that the books of the New Testament would have been placed in a shrine somewhere and uh, very, very carefully preserved. But on the contrary, the early church used these uh, heavily. And since there were no church buildings in this day to house these things, and they, they went home after the service with the preacher. And sometimes they were passed on to the person who would do the public reading of the scripture before the actual sermon and so forth. So these were documents that were passed on from person to person, very heavily used. And it's not surprising that they would have worn out fairly early in Christian history. So we realize that by the time we come to the medieval period, the role of a scribe was fairly well defined uh, in a in a monastery, and and the the scriptorium, you know, was was a place in which that work would have been done, and and uh, it would have it would have been fairly regulated. It would have it would have had a regimen. How how would you have understood that to have happened in the first couple of centuries before you have something like the monastic system? Was it more haphazard. I noticed you talked about it being, you know, being treated ceremonially. Yet, on the other hand, you talk about it being, you know, handed off. One, to, I mean, I, I wonder how many were tempted to. Okay, I'm going to scribble down the, the book of Galatians here while I'm at it, uh, since it's since it's in my house today. Maybe I can, I, uh, you know, write down a copy of of something. So how rigorous? How how careful? Uh, what kind of process in the early church do you, do you discern uh, happening? Yeah, well, many would say that the early process was terribly irresponsible, haphazard, uh, so forth. Uh, but that's done on the basis of speculation and variations that we find later in the history of transmission of the text. If you want to look at the hard evidence of the earliest manuscripts available to us, let's say P46, which dates to AD 200 approximately. And typically when we give a date to a manuscript like that, we're talking about within a 50-year window. So let's talk about plus or minus 25 years, AD 175 to 225. Uh, P46 is our earliest and most extensive manuscript of the epistles of Paul. Uh, and it preserves for us 
an amazingly accurate, high-quality text. Uh, this was proven by Gunther Zuntz, who wrote a book on the text of Paul's epistles uh, in the 20th century, in which he very closely compared Vaticanus, normally recognized as our most reliable New Testament manuscript that covers almost the entirety of the New Testament, to P46, and found that there's remarkable agreement between those two uh, and that they together preserve for us a very, very early and high-quality text. Uh, based on evidence like that, uh, I think that we're talking about very careful copying even in the earliest period. It's often assumed that our earliest scribes were just amateurs, uh, but uh, P46 raises questions about that too because we actually have uh, stichoi enumerations in this papyrus manuscript which are what determined the amount that a professional scribe would be paid after copying a book. Uh, scholars are convinced that P46 was copied by a professional scribe. Now, that doesn't mean he was perfect. Uh, nobody who hand copies any lengthy document is going to do so perfectly. Try it, uh, and I have, and we're going to make mistakes. Uh, but nevertheless, our earliest manuscripts, whether you're talking about P46 of Paul's letters, P75 of the Gospels, are very high-quality manuscripts that show that great care is exercised in copying even in the early era. So many point out the, the numerous textual variants and variations that, that uh, exist in the uh, manuscripts, and yet conservative evangelicals argue that this is actually something that's in favor of being able to discern the original autographs. You are one who has a, a high level of confidence uh, in that we have the Word of God. How, how, do you, how do you answer those who point to the many variant variations and variants? Uh, why, why is it that even though you deal with all these variants, you still have a, a high degree of, of confidence? Yeah, well, not all variants are created equal. I will probably shock the audience by admitting that very careful research, scientific study, some of which is conducted by evangelical scholars, suggests that there are about half a million variants in our between uh, five and a half thousand, six thousand manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Half a million. Yeah. And as Bart Ehrman has argued, uh, that's more variants than there are actual words. But the large number of variants, in part, is the result of the huge amount of evidence that's available to us. Because the more extensive hand copies you have, given uh, our tendency as human beings to make occasional errors, the more the variation is going to be increased. Uh, secondly, although that figure might seem staggering at first, uh, the majority of these variants are either singular readings, which means out of the between 5,500 and 6,000 manuscripts available to us, only one of those has that particular reading, making it highly unlikely that it's original. Singular readings 
are almost never considered seriously as viable candidates for the original reading by textual critics. So we don't have to worry about those. Uh, and then a large number of them are also nonsense readings. Uh, the English example that Dan Wallace likes to give is we the people of the United States of America in order to form a more perfect onion. Whoops. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think we know where the mistake we, we was We automatically there. know yeah. that that is a mistake and we automatically know how to correct it. And a large number of the variants are of that nature too. Some of the variants are just alternative spellings, which isn't a problem because spelling wasn't standardized in much of the ancient world. In fact, even English spelling hasn't been standardized for too terribly long. Yeah, and some of the times it was like a shorthand or, or, or you know, where, where some type of use that would have been normal in that day. I think I've read that um, that for given, despite all the, varia uh, the variants that you just mentioned, that the majority of the text is very stable. Right, it is. If you compare uh, the major editions of the Greek New Testament throughout history, or you compare the critical edition, let's say, that Nestle Allen 28 to the Byzantine text, you're going to find an agreement rate of between 80 and 90 percent. Uh, so that shows us that there is a lot of stability. Uh, when there are questions, uh, many times the questions don't impact exegesis. And even when they sometimes impact details of exegesis, they have no earth-shaking theological consequences. Now, I want to quickly admit that there are some variants that are very significant and are theologically important, but the vast majority of them are not. Uh, Westcott and Hort estimated that only one one-thousandth uh, of the variants are of any real significance. Well, let's talk about the tough ones, uh, the ones that everyone brings up. And of course, uh, the two that come to mind are the account of the woman taken in adultery in John 8 and the long ending to uh, the Gospel of Mark. Which one would you like to look at first? How about we, we look at the long ending of Mark? Okay. What, what do you do with that? Uh, well, Having lived in uh, snake-handling territory, uh, <laughs> having taught at a Bible college in the Appalachian Mountains, I actually am quite relieved that uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20 is probably not uh, a part of the original Gospel of Mark, uh, not present in our earliest and best manuscripts. There are features of that passage that sound unmarking, that don't reflect Mark's normal style and grammar and vocabulary. Now, I do want to admit that when it comes to the manuscript evidence uh, for the text, it's actually stronger there than it is for the John passage. Interesting. And we would prefer for it to be the other way around because most of us love the account of the woman caught in adultery, and we'd rather not handle snakes and drink poison. But... Uh, the internal evidence in Mark 16, 9 through 20 is compelling, in my opinion, that it's not an original part of the Gospel of Mark. 
Now, the issue is actually a bit more complicated than most realize because we don't actually have just a choice between what we might call the King James ending and the ending that you find in modern translations at 16.8. There are actually four major uh, choices to make there. Are there distinctive differences in each one of those? I mean, like somebody leave out the snakes and add in something else, or how how different are we talking? Yeah, we're talking about some significant differences. It's interesting that if, as we discussed earlier, Matthew and Luke actually use Mark in writing their own Gospels, that they stop following Mark when it gets to the resurrection accounts, uh, which seems to suggest that their copies of Mark didn't have 9 through 20. Hmm. So when you look at all of those pieces of evidence, I would say the case is compelling that um, the original Gospel of Mark ended with verse 8. So John 8, as you said, fascinating passage. What is the textual story there? If it doesn't belong uh, in the Gospel of John, what, what do you think is the story behind it being inserted? Yeah, good question. I actually like that passage for many reasons. Its description of Jesus' behavior and words sounds like him. Is the language, is the syntax, is the structure Johannine? Does it sound like John there in John chapter 8? No, we've got several unusual constructions and uh, phrases and examples of vocabulary that don't fit well with John's authorship. Uh, Furthermore, Uh, it seems to break the flow of the narrative. Uh, It uh, makes for very, very awkward leaps and transitions in that section of the Gospel of John. Uh, When you include that narrative in the Gospel, there's a major shift in topic, uh, and as soon as that narrative is completed, it goes right back to where seven ended up. Another problem that many wouldn't realize is that the manuscripts, and they tend to be the later poorer ones, that do include the account of the woman caught in adultery, didn't quite know where to put it. Uh, Some of the ancient manuscripts put it at various places in the Gospel of John. Some of them actually put it in the Gospel of Luke, an entirely different Gospel. So it's kind of like this is a passage in search of a home and uh, early Christians adored it. They wanted it to be in Scripture, but didn't know quite where to best squeeze it in. So as we look at what textual critics do in terms of discerning the best of their ability, what the original autographs actually said, we don't have the original autographs. One way I've heard that said is we don't have the original autographs, but we do have the original words. What would you agree with that? What about that statement would you want to clarify and nuance? Yeah. I'm a little cautious of uh, being overly simplistic in uh, our discussions so that we don't give people who are really seeking answers false impressions. So my favorite statement on this is actually the article that addresses it in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy which says that rightly defined inspiration and inerrancy 
apply only to the original autographs. Only is a strong word. Yeah. Uh, and so it's really not proper for me to hold up a Christian Standard Bible or an NIV or a King James Version and say this particular edition translation is the inspired and errant Word of God. It's a testimony to it, and it's very, very, very close, uh, but we cannot say that every single word is exactly what was contained in the original autographs. Uh, there are points where I'm convinced that every Bible translation uh, could do a better job. Which is why, which is one of the reasons why it, it continues to be an ongoing thing. As you point out, as you, as you said earlier, you know, so much of the text is, is stable, so that we're really not having a debate about that. What we're, really, what we're really having a discussion about is the variations themselves, which makes up, as you said, it, I've heard the numbers from the high 80s to even some would say as high as 92% of the text is, is, is stable. So to our listeners who would be concerned that textual critics are taking their Bible, you know, you're taking your, I'm thinking of my King James uh, brethren, you're, you're trying to take my Bible away from me. What, what word of confidence or encouragement would you give them? To, no, I'm doing the exact opposite. Right, I, yeah. The, the purpose of textual criticism is to restore God's word, uh, recognizing that as it was copied century after century, that ordinary human error in copying introduced changes. And so we have to compare all of the ancient manuscripts available to us and use a scientific approach to determining which of the different readings is most likely the original one. And I'm convinced that we still have some hard, hard work to do in that area. And one of the reasons that I'm concerned about evangelicals sometimes speaking overconfidently as if all of this is settled is we give the impression there's no work to be done. And when we give people the impression there's no work to be done, guess what? The no work, work isn't done. No work gets exactly. done. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that led me to begin to focus on this area of scholarship was my work in the Gospel of Matthew. As I've written several different things on the Gospel of Matthew and was looking at textual variants, I often found myself unsatisfied with the level of research invested in different textual questions. Uh, most commentators are just going to follow what they find in a little textual commentary that's about that thick that was edited by Bruce Metzger. Mm. And it's essentially a compilation of the notes of the committee for our major critical edition of the Greek New Testament. But they devote a paragraph, sometimes two or three, of discussion to very important textual issues. And when I delve into those and invest sometimes hundreds of hours in additional research, I suddenly discover, oh, they overlooked this, they overlooked that. And sometimes it shifts the balance of evidence in favor of another reading. That is time consuming. I've sometimes spent hundreds of hours researching a single variant unit. Uh, sometimes several hundreds of hours. Nobody can do that alone. 
A committee of five in Munster, Germany can't do that alone. It's going to take an army of biblical scholars to do it. But many New Testament scholars really aren't concerned and interested because we keep spouting that it's all settled, nothing to see here, uh, when we really need to roll up our sleeves and get to work, especially evangelicals who are committed to verbal plenary inspiration, who think that every single word of the Holy Scriptures matters. Well, I am glad that you are rolling up your sleeves and doing the hard work, and I appreciate how you have communicated your expertise in the book 40 Questions on the New Testament Text and Canon, and it's coming out by Kriegel. Uh, When is it supposed to be published? I think it will probably be 2022. I've already written the rough draft of my section, uh, but... Uh, it, it will probably take some time. There will be some variance yeah. there on the manuscript. Right. You've been listening to uh, Dr. Chuck Quarles and uh, me, Ken Keithley. This is the Christ and Culture Podcast. Glad to have you with us. Uh, have a good day.